Happy February, everybody. <laughs> Let's uh, take our Bibles uh, this morning and open them to Genesis chapter 37 and verse 25. As we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. We are now in a section of the book where the nation of Israel has been birthed, a very special nation that God will use to bring his blessings to the earth, not the least of which is ultimately Jesus Christ. And God birthed that nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now there is a son of Jacob born, the 11th born out of 12 boys. And one of those sons is named uh, Joseph. And Joseph is raised up by the Lord not so much to birth the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has already been birthed, but to preserve the nation of Israel. Moving Israel out of Canaanite territory and into Egypt, where Israel will be safely incubated from Canaanite influences and polytheistic influences for 400 years. And you wonder, well, how bad was it in Canaan for God to have to move his nation out of Canaan? Answer chapter 38. Chapter 38, when we get to it, will make no sense to you unless you understand the trajectory of what God is doing here. Chapter 38 is the problem. The solution is the movement of Israel out of Canaan. And when God does a work... He puts his hand on a person to do that work. And the person that he chose to use was Jacob's 11th born, a man named Joseph. And so Genesis 37 starts the Joseph story. And it's um, sort of an easy chapter to remember if you look at it in terms of big ideas. There's four big ideas here. Number one, a coat. A special coat that Jacob put on Joseph, provoking the jealousy of his brothers. Number two, dreams. The coat, verses 2 through 4. The dreams, verses 5 through 11, where God, through two dreams, showed Joseph what his life would be like and how he would be elevated to a position of preeminence. That, by the way, in addition to the coat, provoke the jealousy of his brothers. And then number three is a pit. He has a coat, he has dreams, and then we learn in verses 12 through 24 that it's not going to be all smooth sailing. He's actually thrown in a pit and left for dead. And then we come to our section, verses 25 through 36. We'll see how far we can get into this this morning. The fourth big idea is enslavement. Where the brothers sort of have a, they kind of second guess themselves. 
in terms of leaving Joseph to die in this pit, they sell him into slavery, and yet that's exactly where God wanted him. Because it's through slavery he will end up in Egypt and ultimately elevated to second in command. So that's the pathway of God, and it's not always easy. And you should remember that. We should remember that in our personal lives. God has a path for all of us. But sometimes the way God guides and sometimes the way God directs is really not the route that I would have chosen in advance. And God basically says, well, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. I'll get you to where you need to go. I'll get you to where you need to be and how I do it. When I do it, where I do it, through whom I do it is really none of your business. (laughs) Just trust my character and it will come together. And in hindsight, you'll see it for what it is. Joseph, at the very end of his life, could say this to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so God can take negative things. The things themselves aren't good, but God can use them for good. We remember Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 doesn't say everything that comes into your life is good. What it says is God will use it for good. In this case, to conform us into the image of his son in daily life. And so we have sort of a picture of all of this as God is dealing with this 17-year-old named Joseph. So we now move into his enslavement. We have the selling of Joseph, verses 25 through 28, Reuben's discovery, verses 29 and 30. The brothers report back to dad, Jacob, verses 31 through 32, Jacob's response Verses 33 through 35, and then Joseph is sold again from a group called the Ishmaelites into Potiphar, Potiphar's home, which will take him into Egypt. So notice, first of all, the the selling of Joseph. Notice the occasion of all of this. Look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 37 verse 25 it says then they sat down to eat a meal that to me is uh, an astounding thing how you can take your brother throw him into a pit leaving him essentially for dead because there's no food or water that we've been told there's a, it's a waterless pit they all know he's going to die there uh, Reuben, uh, the uh, firstborn, sort of as a plan to, he didn't disclose this to the brothers, but I'm going to go and pull Joseph out of the pit later. But the rest of them basically are acting like complete and total murderers. Throw him into the pit, let's leave him there, and he's going to die there. And that's how much they hated Joseph. And then, you know, if all of that weren't enough, then they just sit down and they have a nice meal as if nothing ever happened. That's how seared one's conscience can become. Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I believe it's verse 2, 
talks about false teaching in the last days and how people in the last days will have a conscience that will become seared as a hot iron. The conscience is the part of us that God has given us. You'll see it spelled out in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. It's sort of like a barometer, which tells us, and every every human being has it, when we are transgressing God's laws. Paul, in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, talks about how our conscience can accuse and also our conscience can excuse. This is one of the tools that God uses to make us all aware that we are guilty before God because he's taken our laws, whether you have any knowledge of the Bible or not, and he's put them into human beings in something called conscience. And it's kind of interesting to listen to modern day psychologists uh, complaining that, you know, the problem with people is is they feel guilty all of the time. Well, newsflash... (laughs) There's a reason why they feel guilty. They are guilty. We're all guilty. You know, I I, I can do things throughout my life that violate conscience. I can do things throughout my life that are excused by conscience. But the standard is there in people. And as we celebrated this morning at the Lord's table, there's only one cure for a guilty conscience, and that's the cleansing blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what you're seeing here with these brothers is just a seared conscience. Uh, you know, leaving someone for dead and then sitting down and having a casual meal as if, you know, nothing had happened. I, I was reminded when I read this of a man in California, and this was a big deal in the 90s. It was the first execution in California via capital punishment after capital punishment had been suspended for many decades. Uh, The man's name was Robert Alton Harris. And he strangled, essentially, some kids at a picnic table. He killed them with his bare hands. And then they were eating McDonald's hamburgers and he noticed that the hamburgers had not been consumed and after he killed them, he sat down and finished their hamburgers. What what do you do with something like that? You're, You're dealing with somebody that has violated conscience so frequently, the ability of conscience to declare guilt has stopped. I think the legal system at that point would call a person you know, criminally insane, when you completely lose the ability to discern right from wrong and you can't even feel remorse or guilt anymore. You know, pain is not the worst thing in the world. When your hand is on a stove and the stove is turned on, pain is your best friend because if you keep your hand on the stove, you'll destroy your hand. You'll do irreparable damage. So the pain that shoots through your hand reminds you not to keep your hand on the the stove. If you're walking on the beach and you feel underneath your feet pain, that's a good thing because the pain is alerting us to the fact that there's broken glass underneath the sand and don't keep walking on it or you're going to do irreparable damage to your feet. The pain becomes your friend in that sense. That's why God gave us conscience. 
But the sad thing about it is you can go against conscience so frequently that it loses its sensitizing effect or impact on us. And that's where these brothers were. They hated Joseph with such intensity and hated him with such severity that they were they were willing to murder him, which is essentially what's happening, leaving him for dead. And then they just kind of sit down and have a common meal about it, you know, as if nothing had gone wrong. So this becomes the predicament that Joseph is in. Verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. The rest of verse 25 says, as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing a romantic, romantic, I should say. I know it's Valentine's Day, but close to Valentine's Day, but it doesn't say romantic, romantic gum, a romantic gum. And of course, I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Now notice this group of people that comes along. They're called the Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? Well, the Ishmaelites came into existence because Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, just got tired of waiting on God. They got tired of waiting for this promise to be fulfilled that they're going to have a son And so they decided to help God out. And they hatched this plan. Uh, Gee, Abram, why don't you go impregnate Hagar, an Egyptian bondservant in our household, and then you could have a child through her, and we could help God fulfill his promises. I notice that Abram doesn't sit and argue with Sarah. He says, hey, that sounds like a great idea. And so he does that. And from that unholy union comes forth Ishmael and from Ishmael comes the Ishmaelites who have been uh, perennial problems, a perennial thorn in the side to the Israelis right up to this present time. So that's who these Ishmaelites uh, come from. And it says there in verse 25 that they were coming from a place called Gilead Where is Gilead? Gilead, you see it there circled uh, in the east. And they're basically following a trade route. The trade route starts um, in the east and it ends up there in the southwest in Egypt. And notice where this trade route goes. It goes right through this little area that they were in called Dothan. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of this um, trade route says, so in verse 17, Joseph journeys to Dothan. Now you might, you might be wondering, what was the big deal about getting Joseph to Dothan? Because he left from Hebron and he went to Shechem. But there in Shechem, he couldn't find his brothers, you'll remember, as Jacob sent him out to sort of report on what his brothers were doing. And he went to Shechem and he was standing in a field and there a man said, who are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Oh, they went to Dothan. 
And you see that there in verse 17. It says, the man said, they have moved from here, for I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph, verse 17, went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now you read that and you say, well, why do I need to know that? Well, the reason it becomes significant is Dothan is where this trade route went through. I mean, you'll notice where it starts, Gilead. It goes in and around or through Dothan and ends up in Egypt. So this becomes the tool that God is going to use to get Joseph into Egypt where he will be instrumental in bringing the nation of Israel into uh, Egypt to insulate them from Canaanite influences. It is interesting how the Bible starts to make sense when you start to examine these details. Your average Bible reader would look at that and say, I don't need to know that they went to Dothan. Why why do do I care? Well, you should care because that's where a well-known trade route went through. Every detail in the Bible is there for a reason. And when you're reading something in the Bible that really doesn't make sense, it's just a matter of doing a little bit more research to figure out why it's so significant that Joseph gets to Dothan. He's got to get to Dothan because that's where the trade route went through. And that is, in fact, the journey that God is going to use to get Joseph into Egypt. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, so in verse 17, Joseph journeys to Dothan. After Joseph went after his brethren, he found them in Dothan. Dothan is north of Shechem, another day's journey. The situation in Shechem may still have been somewhat tense, but for one reason or another, they had chosen to go further north, and Dothan was the place located on the north-south trunk route. Dothan was located on the east-west trade route between Gilead and the coastal plain where it connected with something called the Via Maris that in turn would go south into Egypt. All of this sets the stage for the selling of Joseph. There are no accidents in the leading of God. He had to be at a specific place at a specific time and God made sure he got there. Arnold Fruchtenbaum also says in verse 27b came the agreement and his brothers hearkened unto him. Verse 28 records the selling and there passed by the Midianites, merchantmen. They are called merchantmen for they were North Arabian caravaneers who branched off through Gilead to the main route to Egypt, the Via Maris from the king's highway. I hope we understand that as we study the book of Genesis and any book of the Bible for that matter, you're reading actual history. It doesn't give you some weird, you know, pie in the sky theology. It presents theology out of a historical context that is highly credible. We're not reading veggie tales. We're not reading Jack and the Beanstalk. We say no to the secularist who says, you guys do your religion on Sunday, but we'll handle the history in the classroom the rest of the time. There is no division between history and God. God chose to reveal and disclose himself in a very real, credible, historical context that can be examined and studied out.
So they're coming with gum and balm and myrrh because this is a trade route. And as we continue on there, verses 26 and 27, you see Judah's uh, proposal. Notice, if you will, verse 26. It says, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Verse 27. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother our own flesh. Now here, Judah, the fourth born, speaks up. He asks sort of a rhetorical question, you know, leaving this, our brother for dead, you know, he's our flesh and blood after all. So why don't we just sell him as a slave to this group of Ishmaelites that's following this trade route? Uh, You'll notice that Reuben has been speaking up, trying to protect Joseph, although secretly Reuben probably did that because he was the firstborn. And you'll notice that Judah is speaking up because he is the fourthborn. In fact, it's through Judah that Jesus is going to come to planet Earth. Judah is going to be the progenitor of a tribe. And through that very special tribe of Judah will come ultimately Jesus Christ. That's a prophecy that Jacob is going to make in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. So he comes up with this proposal, verse 27. After all, he is our flesh and blood. It's kind of interesting that the word brother or brethren, can be used in the scripture of fellow Israelites. Sometimes the word brother, uh, we use it as fellow believers in Jesus. But sometimes it's used of fellow Israelites. That's the way the concept is being used here in these verses. Paul in Romans 9 verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh. There Paul wants the Jewish nation saved because he himself is a fellow Hebrew. The sheep and the goat judgment at the end of the tribulation period. It says, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it unto me. And what people are doing with that verse today is they're basically saying we got to get out there and we got to help the poor, which is a good thing to do. But that's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is talking about people at the end of the tribulation period who will survive it. And the Lord at the end of the tribulation period has to make a determination which of y'all are saved and which of y'all are unsaved. The saved are the sheep and they enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies. The unsaved are the goats. They're cast off the earth into Hades. And the Lord makes that determination by a person's willingness in the tribulation period itself to help Christ's brethren. Well, who are Christ's brethren? It's the Jewish people who will be hunted down 
and persecuted during the tribulation period itself. If a person steps up, let's say like Oscar Schindler did in the World War II era in the midst of the Holocaust and has a propensity or a desire to help the Jewish people in their greatest time of need, the Lord will say, well, faith without works is is dead. They're demonstrating their faith, James 2, by how they're acting. So they're a sheep. And they enter the millennial kingdom. So this concept of brother, brethren, sheep, flesh and blood, you'll see it used frequently as you go through the Bible concerning fellow Jews. That's not the only way the term is used, but that's how it's used here in verse 26 and verse 27. So Judah makes a proposal Again, verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him, for he is our own flesh and blood. Judah is speaking up because Judah is the firstborn, uh, fourthborn, excuse me. And after all, let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him as a slave. And doing so will appease our guilty conscience. And so the agreement is entered into amongst the brothers. End of verse 27, and his brothers listened to him. Why would they listen to him? They looked up to him, just like they looked up to Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. Uh, Judah would be the fourthborn. And now you see Joseph sold as a slave to this group called the Ishmaelites, who have their origin in Genesis 16 where Abram and Sarah decided to help God out. It's interesting how God is taking all of these loose ends and and bringing them together as a talented author is able to do. You go down to verse 28 and you see the actual selling of Joseph into slavery. It says, Then the Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted him, that's Joseph, out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now it's a little tricky because first it said Ishmaelites. But if you look at verse 28 carefully, it also calls them Midianites. Well, we know where the Ishmaelites came from. They came from Genesis 16. Where did the Midianites come from? It comes from Abraham's second marriage because Sarah, his first wife, died. Genesis 23. Abram's second marriage to a woman named Keturah. And from Abraham and Keturah came a lot of people, including the Midianites, Genesis 25, 1 and 2, it says, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him, and here's a bunch of names I'm going to have trouble pronouncing, so I won't even try. But one of those descendants was the Midianites, Midian. From Midian came the Midianites. Where did the Midianites settle? What we would call today Arabia, Saudi Arabia most likely. 
that has now taken on the name the land of Midian. So these Midianites are descendants of Keturah, Genesis 25. The Ishmaelites are descendants of Abram and Hagar, Genesis 16. And it's sort of interesting as you go through the Bible, what you'll start seeing is the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, their names start being used interchangeably. You can jot down Judges 8, verses 22 through 26. Uh, There in verse 22, it talks about Midian. But then in verse 24 of Judges 8, it talks about the Ishmaelites. And then in Judges 8, 26, it switches back to Midian and the Midianites. So what we what we think happened is the Midianites and the Ishmaelites became allies. And essentially the Midianites absorbed the Ishmaelites. Whereas as you get further on into biblical history, they start to be called by the name Midianites. And you're saying to yourself, well, who cares? The reason this information is important is Genesis is the book of beginnings. If you don't have a knowledge of the book of Genesis, you have no idea where everything came from. Just like if you have no knowledge of the book of Revelation, you have limited knowledge of where everything's going. God, who is outside of time, reveals to us things that we weren't eyewitnesses to see. The book of Genesis. God, who is outside of time, also reveals to us future things that we are not there to see as eyewitnesses currently. We will be one day, but not today. And the only reason we can have knowledge of the past and the future is we've given attention to these two major sections of God's word. The beginning and the end. Uh, Ed Jones was announcing our prophecy conference. That's the theme of this year's prophecy conference. The beginning and the end. The beginning explains the end and the end explains the beginning. Sort of a alpha and omega prophecy conference from, from flood to final days is the title of it. From flood to fire. Unless a person gives attention to those sections of the word of God, which are outside of human eyewitness capacity, they have no concept of where we came from or where we're going. And if you don't know where you came from and you don't know where you're going, how in the world would you ever understand what you're supposed to be doing now? And it is a a tragedy to see evangelical Christianity sort of dismiss Genesis 1 through 11. Or sort of dismiss the book of Revelation. That's why so many sermons that you hear today are about practical steps for daily living. It's all about the nasty now and now. Your best life now. Why is there such a focus on now? Because we've severed ourselves from the beginning and we've severed ourselves from the end. And the only thing left to talk about is the present. But the truth of the matter is you can't even understand your role in the present unless you understand where you've come from and where you're going. I mean, unless you have a windshield and a rearview mirror, 
where you've come from, where you're going, how in the world would you ever understand how to drive the car in the present? See that? That's why these details in the book of Genesis, although they seem kind of boring at first glance, become very, very interesting. Because Moses, as he is writing this to the Joshua generation, the recipient of the book of Genesis was the Joshua generation who was going to do battle with the Midianites, etc. You would need some sort of understanding of where these people groups came from. No knowledge of the book of Genesis. You don't know where the universe came from. You don't know where life came from. You don't know where man came from. Marriage. Boy, everybody's trying to change marriage today as if it's up to us to change it. I'm not going to change marriage. God established marriage. I know that from studying Genesis. Where did evil come from? Where did clothing come from? Why are people religious? Why do they, why do they think that they've got to do something to merit God's favor through human works? Where did salvation come from? Where did language come from? Why are there multiple languages? Where did human government come from? And then you'll notice the one I have underlined there, nations, like the Ishmaelites and the Midianites and the absorption of the Ishmaelites into the Midianites. Where did, where did that come from? Genesis alone will explain that to you. Where did the nation of Israel come from? You know, the, the youth of America are, are protesting the nation of Israel today. Did you know that? From the river to the sea, the land of Palestine shall be free. What does that even mean? Well, we don't want a Jewish presence between the Jordan and the Mediterranean is what it means. Then you ask them, well, where did the nation of Israel even come from? And what river are you talking about? And what sea are you talking about? And most of them can't even give you a straight answer on that. Because they're coming from outside a biblical lens, a biblical grid, a biblical worldview. How about slavery? Where did that come from? Um, here is uh, Senator Tim Kaine on the Senate floor saying America invented slavery. This headline says Democrat Senator Kane claims the United States created slavery and didn't inherit slavery from anybody. This mentality is what's called the 1619 Project. Mandatory history today in the public system where people are indoctrinated into thinking that America didn't really begin in 1776. She began in 1619 with the advent of slavery. The Bible says something completely different. Slavery is a horrific, horrific institution. But the truth of the matter is, slavery was practiced long before the United States of America ever came into existence. I mean, you're reading about slavery right here in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph is sold as a slave into Egypt. 
And the agenda of God, everywhere Christianity is gone. Slavery has always found itself on the ash heap of history, rightfully so. The agenda of God is to liberate people from slavery. I mean, isn't that what the whole Bible is about? Including the ultimate form of slavery, which is slavery to sin. John chapter 8 and verse 36 says, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's why people who practice slavery, impose slavery. By the way, you know this, but in Muslim countries today, slavery is alive and well. Why is it alive and well in some places of the world but not others? It has to do with the gospel penetration. Everywhere the gospel has gone, slavery becomes a thing of the past because the whole point of Christianity is to liberate people. And if that works in the spiritual realm, it doesn't make any sense for us to practice it in the physical realm. The principles of God's word are opposite of slavery. Slavery did not begin with the United States of America. Slavery began all the way back in the book of Genesis. I'll tell you something about the United States of America, if I could. I'm not saying America is some kind of perfect country with a perfect past, but I'll tell you one thing that makes us different than most other cultures of the world is although slavery was infiltrated into the United States, America actually did something to stop it. Why did America do something to stop it? Because there isn't a country in the world where the gospel is more available than in the United States. And if the Son of Man has come to make us free and free indeed, one race enslaving another makes no sense at all. Because we all are made in God's image. So Joseph here is being sold into slavery. This would be the patriarchal era. This would be 1,800 years, roughly, before Jesus ever stepped foot onto planet Earth. And Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and sold in, into, as a slave into Egypt for how much money? 20 shekels of silver. Not even 20 pieces of gold which is the most valuable metal, secondary metal. 20 pieces of silver, which was the price in that day of an average slave. Now, as we're going through the Joseph story, we've made a point about how this all is a type or typology of Jesus. Joseph is a type of Jesus. It's just that we don't know Joseph is a type of Jesus until Jesus shows up 2,000 years later, roughly, and we can start to draw the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And it is interesting that Jesus was, was sold or betrayed for silver. In his case, it was 30 pieces of silver, not even gold. In the case of Joseph, who was not Jesus... But a type of Jesus, it's 20 pieces of silver. 
What a horrific background this man Joseph had. And yet what you're going to find in the life of Joseph is he doesn't use the abuse excuse. We can get like that if we have bad backgrounds. We could spend our whole life complaining about what happened to us. You will not find that in the life of Joseph. What you will discover is a man who understands that he was pressed into the purpose for his life through abuse. And he says at the end, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Every single thing that's happened to you in your life, positive or negative, if you allow God to do it, You can say to yourself, God, let it happen, and somehow God is going to work good through it. God never says the pain of the past is good, but he will use it together for good. And we spend so much time in bitterness for what happened to us when God is saying to us through the story of Joseph, I allowed it. I allowed it to bring a higher purpose that you may not even be aware of. So... Give that pain to me. Give that bitterness to me. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And let me bring about my purpose for your life. And don't spend your whole life looking in the rearview mirror using the abuse excuse. I can't do this. I can't do that. Because look at my past. Look at what happened to me. What what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? Does he not say, forgetting the things that lie behind? I press on towards the prize, the upward calling in Christ Jesus. You know, when when you're driving, it's kind of interesting. Your windshield is really big and your rearview mirror is really small. Have you ever asked yourself why that is? Well, the answer is simple. You're, you're supposed to spend most of your time looking forward through the windshield rather than backward through the rearview mirror. But so many Christians, they spend all of their time micromanaging and microanalyzing their past that they're driving, spending most of their time looking at what's behind them rather than what God has in front of them. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things are happening to Joseph. But God is going to use it for good. You know, you can't really, in a lot of circumstances, control what happened to you. But you can control your reaction to it. That I have control over. I don't have to spend my life in bitterness and anger and resentment and spend all my time looking behind me when God says, look at the future. You know, Joseph, he went through this abuse and there's no other way to describe this other than abuse. As you study his life, he's looking forward. He's looking in the future. I don't think Joseph could have become the man of God he became by perpetually thinking about the past. I mean, the past is called the past for a reason, right? Let's let the past be the past. 
I'm not here trying to put a happy face in everybody's past. That's not my intention. My intention is to get us to understand the past through the lens of God, which makes all the difference in the world. And then Reuben, who has actually come up with a plan to kind of put Joseph in this pit and rescue him later, uh, his plan is thwarted. You see Reuben's plan back in verse 22. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Reuben is acting like an adult because he is the firstborn. So Reuben's plan was, and the brothers were going to kill him right there on the spot. Oh, let's just put him in the pit. The brothers said, thumbs up. That'll get rid of him. And then that'll kind of wash our hands. We don't have to call ourselves murderers because he just died of starvation or thirst in the pit. Reuben has in his mind that I'm going to go rescue him later. But Reuben's plan is thwarted because Joseph has been sold to the Ishmaelites which is a synonym for the Midianites down into Egypt. Reuben discovers this, uh, I think it is verse 29. It says, Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his clothes. Why is it that Reuben's best intentions did not rescue Joseph? Answer, God had a plan. God's whole plan is to get him into Egypt because of what Joseph would become in Egypt for the benefit of the nation of Israel. And even your best intentions, Reuben, can't stop God's plan. Just remember that. If God has a plan in motion, you can't stop it. Even even the best intentions can't stop it. And in fact, if you try to stop it, The only thing you're doing is expediting the plan, making the wheels go faster. Tremendous teaching here on the sovereignty of God. You know, the the issue in our lives is not my plan and what I want to do. By the way, James, I think it's chapter 4, talks about that. Come now, you people that think you're going to go to a certain city and start a business and prosper You don't even know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. You're like mist, James 4, verse 14, that appears for a little while and then it's gone. Instead, you ought to say, James tells us, James 4, if the Lord wills, I'll go to this city and start this business. Reuben has his plan, but his plan is not going to come to fruition because it's not God's plan. I don't want to live my life for my plans. I had a youth pastor once that said, you want to make God laugh? Show him your plans for your life. Show him your little sandcastle or your card house. This is what I want to do. And the Lord just laughs at that. Instead, we want to press into his plan. We need to be continually asking and praying, Lord, not in, in this circumstance, not my will be done, but thy will be done. 
So Reuben's plan, well-intentioned, comes up short. He looks into the pit. Joseph is not in there. And he, he, he takes his garments and he tears them. Which biblically is a sign of grief. It happened in the book of Job. Job chapter 1 verse 20. This is when Job lost almost everything. It says, then Job arose and tore his robes, or robe, excuse me, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. In all of our discussion about the worship wars in evangelical Christianity, which really is more of a conversation about people's preferences, I don't find anybody in any worship conference quoting Job 120. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. After losing almost everything, including his health, his business, his family. When Jesus was declared guilty by the Jewish leadership in Matthew 26, verse 65, and Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man that would one day bring the kingdom to the earth at the end of Daniel 7. That, to the Jewish mindset, was heretical to say something like that. And when the high priest heard Jesus say that, it says this, Then the high priest tore his robe and said he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard this blasphemy. This is where Reuben is at. He realizes that blood is on his hands. He can't can't stop what God has put in motion, so he just tears his robe. And you see here this dilemma that he's in, verse 30. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not here. As for me, where am I to go? I've blown it. Joseph is dead, Reuben says. I've neglected, I've negated my responsibilities as the firstborn. I, I should have done more to prevent the destruction of Joseph. And now comes the cover up. What are you going to tell dad? Well, we've got to hatch a scheme, don't we? We've got to come up with something. Verse 31 is what they came up with. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. You know, it's interesting that when you study ethics, when you study uh, business management, and business ethics, and I'm glad they still teach that because it shows me that some people are trying to be ethical in business. It's not the initial problem that gets people. It's the cover-up. It's the story you try to spin to cover up what you did. That's what gets people into trouble. If they had just come clean initially and said, yeah, I cooked the books, or yeah, I did this, or did that, I I embezzled the money, the problem would be 
much less severe than the cover-up. It's not the first thud that gets you. It's thud number two that gets you. And so they're, they're covering up uh, what they did. If you look back at verse 23, it says they had Joseph's coat because before they threw him into the pit, they stripped him of his coat. It says, verse 23, So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they uh, stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. That was the tunic that Jacob gave to Joseph that made him special, that invoked or provoked the jealousy of the brothers. So they've got this coat still that they tore off him before they threw him into a pit and then sold him as a slave down into Egypt. Um, what we ought to do is just dip it in blood and just kind of make it sound like Joseph was killed by wild animals or something to that extent. Verse 32, it says, They sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we, uh, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Verse 33, then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces, covering up what they, what they did. Verse 31 is the, is the cover up. Now, let me just make one quick point about verse 31 before we wrap up here. I want you to see this, that Jacob the deceiver. Remember the story of Jacob? Genesis 27. Cheated his brother out of the blessing. Cheated his brother out of the birthright. Now Jacob is being deceived by the very means of deception that he was using in Genesis 27. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this, Here again, there is a form of retribution. Jacob deceived Isaac with goatskins, Genesis 27, verse 16. Now, Jacob, now Jacob was being deceived with goat's blood. Jacob deceived with goat's skins. Now he's being deceived with goat's blood concerning this tale that they're spinning that Joseph has been killed by wild animals. Furthermore, Jacob deceived Isaac with Esau's clothes. Remember that? Now Jacob was deceived by the use of Joseph's clothes. Now, this kind of thing happens in Jacob's life over and over again. Remember the bride that he wanted, Rachel, and how he was deceived by Laban, and and he ended up with Leah there up north in Haran. The same thing happened to him there. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, now the deceiver is deceived. Although the motivations differ from good to bad, this divine retribution is in four ways. First, Isaac's blindness equals the darkness of Jacob's wedding night. 
and neither could see well as a result. Second, this Jacob is deceived by being presented the older for the younger. The reversal of Isaac's presentation of Jacob for Esau. Third, Isaac thought Jacob was Esau and Jacob thought Leah was Rachel. Fourth, Jacob pretended to be his older brother while Leah pretended to be her younger sister. So you you get out of Genesis 27 and you think, uh, wow, Jacob's really going to get away with something. No, he's not. God is going to allow him two times to be deceived using virtually the same means of deception that he used in Genesis 27. It happens with the marriage to Leah in Haran, and it's happening again as, as he is being deceived concerning what happened to Joseph. You know, the, the saying is this, what, what goes around comes around. People that engage in deception, they think they're actually fooling somebody. And you can fool a lot of people. But there's someone you can't fool, and that's God. And let me let you in on a little secret here related to your progressive sanctification in Christ Jesus. God loves you too much to see you get away with that. He will take circumstances in your life and reverse them. Where God says, boy, what you did to so-and-so, do you realize that was hurtful to them? No, I don't think it was that hurtful, Lord. And the Lord says, okay, let's see how it feels when the shoe's on the other foot. And when the shoe's on the other foot, we realize that what we did to so-and-so was not Christ-like. And we develop that sensitivity as the Lord puts us into the identical situation where earlier we used on another person. This has happened to Jacob twice. This is growth. This is part of the pain of maturing into Christ-likeness. I could tell you stories where this kind of thing has happened in my life several times. And I just praise the Lord it's 1230 where I don't have to reveal all that to you. (laughs) Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Remember what Moses said to the Transjordan tribes? Numbers 32 verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. And keep that in mind, too, when you're ripped off by somebody. And you think in your mind they're getting away with something. They're not getting away with anything. Any more than we get away from things, get away with things. Given the, the, the love that the Lord has for us. The Lord loves us too much to see us get away with sin. 
He wants us to understand the nature of sin, the power of sin, the destructive influence of sin. And one of the things he does is he rearranges circumstances in our lives where the means that we use to harm someone else are the identical means that come back at us. It's part of growth into Christ-likeness. We'll see uh, next time, verse 32, where the brothers show the coat to Jacob. You know, the wonderful thing about all of this talk about you reap what you sow and these kinds of things is the grace of God. We can have a position with God not based on our own merit because our own merit at the end of the day isn't worth much. We can have a position with God based on His grace. Grace is unmerited favor. God giving to us favor that we didn't deserve. And that's what God offers in the person of Jesus Christ. Whose final words on the cross were, it is finished. And in a generation and a human race filled with sinners and deceivers God says rest on what I have done through Jesus to gain right standing before me if there's anybody here today that has never never received that free gift our exhortation as you come under the inspiration and the convicting ministry of the spirit where the Spirit convicts us of our need to do this, our exhortation is to place your faith, which means trust, for your eternity, for your salvation, for the safekeeping of your soul, exclusively into the God-man Jesus Christ and be saved. Becoming a believer in Jesus is not a multi-step program. It does not require the giving of money. It does not require walking an aisle. It does not require saying the sinner's prayer. It is a condition of the heart where the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and they put their trust in Jesus, saying, you know, my self-righteousness at the end of the day is not worth much, but I'm going to trust in Jesus' righteousness, which is now transferred to us as a gift at the point of faith. I hope many, many people within the sound of my voice are doing that. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this um, account of Joseph and what he went through, and yet your hand was on him and you used him, him mightily. I pray, Lord, that as we're going through the book of Genesis, that the book of Genesis would be going through us as we learn to walk out our relationship with you starting this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Thank you, Pastor. Would you please rise?